I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Supernatural. Here at Goop, we've never been shy about talking dirty, particularly when it comes to the chemicals often used in conventional cleaning products. These are products that we spread all around us as we spray, wipe, and scrub, and sometimes we end up inhaling them. Luckily, they're super natural. Their cleaning solutions rely on essential oils and powerful plant-based ingredients to get the job done. And when I say powerful, I mean that their starter kit, which includes four of their concentrates, is extremely effective at cleaning up countertop spills, wiping little fingerprints off of bathroom mirrors, and scrubbing the occasional mud footprints from our floors. Get your hands on Supernatural at supernatural.com and receive $10 off your first starter kit using code GOOP at checkout. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with someone who has shown us a new way of thinking about some aspect of life. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. I learn a lot from the guests she talks with and take away something tangible from every single episode. Today's guest is Amy Whitaker. Amy is a bit of a unicorn in that she has both an MBA and an MFA. She has taught business to artists and art to business people, which is why she's sometimes called a business poet. Amy is an assistant professor of visual arts administration at NYU Steinhardt and the author of Art of Thinking. I mean art as this process in any area of life, not of going from A to B, but inventing point B. So the fact that you don't know where you're going and the fact that you're committed to it is the art project. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, caught up with Amy on a trip to New York to talk about the balance between the practical and creative self and how we can more skillfully tap into both. We see other people's work from the outside and we think, oh, I could never do that. That person's a huge risk taker or they're a genius. And I just don't think that's true. I think there's a messiness where, you know, the work isn't being in a vacuum, making an object or starting a company. The work is the mess. Before we get to Amy, let's talk about one of our partners. You know those days when you just can't seem to peel yourself out of bed? If you've been listening to the Goop podcast, you'll know that I've been trying to fit more meaningful activities with my kids into our weekends, but we're typically slow to motivate on Saturdays and Sundays, and I don't necessarily want to give that up. I'm not into overscheduling, and I really love those laid-back mornings when our boys and cats pile into our bed and just hang out. The company is good, for sure, but the bed makes a real difference. Avocado Green Mattress is handmade right here in California, and it's the best bed around for a snuggle session. It's super comfortable, but beyond that, the mattress is made really thoughtfully. Avocado has traded out flame retardants, synthetic foams, and chemical adhesives. Instead, for example, they use New Zealand wool, organic cotton, natural latex rubber, and recycled steel coils. Chances are, if it's better for the planet, it's probably better for us, too. Log on to avocadogreenmattress.com to get yours and take an extra $175 off on any mattress by using code GOOP175 
at checkout. At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Amy Whitaker. Amy, why is creativity so essential to business and the reverse? I think we live in, at least I do, in a hyper-vigilant efficiency mindset where you're like, oh no, I just missed that light, I just missed the train. And business is curious because it's based on these two different assumptions. And one is efficiency. How can I do something quickly? How can I manufacture it cheaply? Uh, But also business is based on innovation. Like in the long term, how can I do something that's uh, special that other people aren't doing? And so for me, the intersection of those is actually very human. And it's about what is it that in the midst of your busy difficult, challenging, beautiful day, you can find time to think about that is uniquely yours, whether it succeeds or fails, and how can you make space for that in the market and in a long-term business strategy sense, how can you create things of value? You know, how can we reorient how we think of the economy to be about contribution Mm -hmm. and believing that we have contributions that are ours alone to make at whatever scale and thinking about that as a creative practice, but a creative practice that requires some economic scaffolding to be supported. I love sort of the safeguards throughout the book that you establish for people who are extremely creative and probably I'm going to project that they're intimidated by business, Um, (laughs) but sort of the safe space that you provide for them in terms of like thinking about how to protect their own interests without minimizing what they're adding creatively, which I think is really probably deeply liberating. You know, you talk about this metaphor, like this idea of this diversified portfolio, for example, and that you you need the structural couch and then you can create these cushions that are if I'm reading this correctly, tell me if I'm wrong, but that they are, they can be sort of these projects or these creative endeavors or passion, things that you're potentially passionate about, about that you can't monetize, but that like you can do that and have a full life while still, while supporting it with a really simple sofa. Yeah. It's so funny. I'm, I'm really tempted to joke and to say wrong because that's the fear and that's the fear. I work as a professor and that's also the fear of not understanding business or getting art wrong or not understanding art. Um, so first of all, um, I love your question and there's so many questions wrapped up in it. If I can just kind of start back at the beginning. So I, I got an MBA in 2001 because I wanted to be a museum manager And then I got an MFA in painting a year later because uh, my job was canceled. My father died. 9-11 happened. And I was upside down, able to make a life decision and not a career decision. And then I spent, honestly, a decade trying to figure out how those things were related and then understanding that it wasn't just that it was weird I was having to think about it, that all of us have to think about it. And if I'm being really honest about why... I got an MBA in the first place. A big part of it was that I wanted to be able to participate in dinner conversation with my dad and my brother, Mm. that I perceived business as being the way the world worked. And in some ways it is. Uh, In some ways we live in this vast market economy. And even if you're going camping and you need some duct tape, you have to go buy it at a store. 
Uh, sometimes you can barter for things. Um, but I understood it as this kind of power structure that people felt left out of. I felt left out of. Um, and we've been talking about this, you're a mathlete uh, by background. And like, it's a, it's a language that's constructed out of math. And that sometimes intimidates people, but it's terrible that it, it would intimidate someone who um, is a rock star at, at that language. So what I really was thinking about was kind of how, how I could understand it, but then also how all of us could understand it, because this is idealistic, but I actually think this um, business is a medium, the way that paint is a medium or figuring out your schedule for the day is a medium. It's a material that you build stuff out of. And at its core, it's actually hopeful. It's based on a sense of resourcefulness, of trying to do a lot with a little or trying to look around and see what you have and do something beautiful and interesting. And from that standpoint, I think if you have a creative project or a dream or something you've always wanted to pursue, what you're trying to do, and I think this is what you're getting at, is make space for it. And you're trying to figure out how to make economics work for you as a creative person. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at me from the outside, I look like I have that figured out and I work at it every day. Um, the way that some people who look like serious athletes work at it every day. It's a podcast. I look like a lady who ate a jar of Nutella this week. Um, <laughs> But uh, in all seriousness, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to make it work, and it's hard to hold space for creative projects. And I have a full-time job, but I didn't have a full-time job for a long time. And I felt scrappy and like I was investing in stuff, and I wasn't sure if it was going to work out. And that is what the book is about. The book is about how to hold space for vulnerability and the autonomy of being an architect of a structure that works for you at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the story you mentioned about the couch and the throw pillows, I love because my editor made me put it in the book. I wasn't really <laughs> sure. I mean, it's hard even for me to figure out when to speak personally when I'm also speaking about capitalism or you know, sunk cost or whatever. But I was in the car once with my brother probably seven years ago, and I said to him that you know, I had all these projects that I really loved, but that the projects felt like all throw pillows and no couch, which basically meant I needed a full-time job and I needed the throw pillows to be on the side, not to be the structure itself. That's what I personally needed. That was my personal risk tolerance um, and need to support myself. And then I started thinking about it and I started thinking about it not from a day-to-day -day consumption income statement standpoint, where you're like money in, money out, is there a surplus? But an investment standpoint, where you think I put money in now, and am I building something that has uh, increasing value later? And basically, how can you look at your life and look at the throw pillows and say, one of these throw pillows is going to be the next couch. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got interested in the ways people are compensated for creative labor and whether you own any of the upside that you're creating. Mm -hmm. So we think a lot about the risk of failure, the downside risk, but what's the upside risk of creating something of value but not owning any of it? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's something really hopeful and beautiful embedded in that, which is that you kind of have no idea whether you're really creating something of value 
when you're working on it. Sometimes you don't know for a long time. Sometimes you think it's wonderful and then you cringe a little later at the memory of the pride you had about it. Sometimes you think it's terrible and really revealing and then you understand its wholeness later. Yeah, I love I think all of those components of the book are are probably so essential for anyone who is really trying to work as an artist and but I think for everyone there are about five things that I want to go into and in what you just said. The first being, um, you know, you said it was just me, but I needed that beige pillow. But I think in general, there's the mythology about creative people and artists that they risk it all and reap great rewards when the reality is they had patrons, they had other jobs. You know, you talk a lot about Harper Lee working as a reservation agent and then the fact that she was sort of supported by good friends for a year. So there is this mythology, and I think people think, I just need to quit my job to go and invest in myself and invest in my dream. And sometimes, like, that's maybe not the best thing. Like, you need the security network of not having to work from fear. I was just in Canada last night and in Montreal, and I was talking to a bunch of women at dinner, and they were saying how... Montreal, like they feel so emboldened to be creative there. And there's so many working artists and designers just because of the social structure of Canada. Like there's inherently a net and you don't have to worry about education, healthcare, and that allows more risk. So I think what you, I think that's very universal. I have those conversations with my husband and what's the, what do you think is the, for someone who feels creatively untapped, what's the ideal mix? I know you probably can't say, but is it like <laughs> you ha you work at Starbucks and then you paint at night? Like, what do you think is psychologically, spiritually, what do you think is the right mix? Yeah. So I, I mean, I love everything that you just said, and I wish there were one exact answer for everyone. Um, and it's always a little bit different for different people. I think all of us have different risk tolerances, but the, if I could answer your question with an idea and a tactic and a strategy, um, the idea is you, you kind of raised the myth of artistic genius, that we see other people's work from the outside and we think, oh, I could never do that. That person's a huge risk taker or they're a genius. And I just don't think that's true. I think there's a messiness where you know the work isn't being in a vacuum, making an object or starting a company. The work is the mess. The work is figuring out how to sit with and be present within exactly where we all find ourselves. And I, I deal with this every day. I, I don't have that, that riddled. Um, the tactic that I would use, though, is to carve out what in the book is called studio time. So just to start with it as a practice. So not, okay, I'm going to work on it a little bit as a side hustle, and therefore in three months I will have like gone viral and figured it out. It's more like I'm going to carve out an amount of time in my week that I feel comfortable, that I can afford to lose, and treat it as tuition in my own learning, mm. and adopt what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset or a learning mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. So trying to park the internal judgmental voice and just think, how do I discern what I'm moving through? You know, how's it going? How can I make it better? What's working? What's not working? And to try to adopt that safety of a process mindset within that space. So it's a practice, the way meditation is a practice. And then the strategy layer is just making sure that 
whether by yourself or in conversation with your friends or on a walk or in the car, you're thinking about what actually matters to you and what the question is that you want to work on. And the idea of art is difficult to describe uh, other things with because it has such a meaning, you know, art fairs and museums and do I understand it or I could never make that or I could definitely make that. And I mean art as this process in any area of life, not of going from A to B, but inventing point B. So the fact that you don't know where you're going and the fact that you're committed to it is the art project. And there's a person I have met actually since I wrote the book called Tom Chi. He is the person who prototyped Google Glass. Mm. Uh, and he talks a lot about experimentation and how you can shorten the cycle time of experimentation. So you think of it not in terms of success or failure, but learning, that everything is a guess until you do something. And then once you do something, you can learn from it. So he was in a meeting his first day at Google X uh, with a, a decision made in the meeting about the color wavelength of light of Google Glasses. And then that afternoon, he built a prototype so they could actually try out all the different colors of, of photons. I'm out of my depth, of photons of light. It, I'm out of my depth, but the important part is it's the first thing you actually have to design to make Google Glass. And, uh, and they, they change their mind based on what they learned from the prototype. And the prototype is this amazing thing that looks like it's bent out of a coat hanger and hand-drawn into a Scooby-Doo cartoon or something. Um, but it, it's that kind of mindset. It's like how to make space to try stuff. And it doesn't mean you have to be by yourself in a room. You can try stuff in conversation with a friend over a glass of wine. You can try stuff with your children. You can try stuff in a room by yourself if you want, but it's just to kind of carve out that space. Yeah. I, when it's interesting that I love that idea. And I also, when you're talking about the mess and the weeds in the book and, and how hard it is to be in the middle, I, in college, I double majored in, um, English and art and I double majored in art because I went to Yale and there's an incredible MFA program. So, I had Catherine Opie. I had all these incredible artists who would teach classes and I did it not as a, it wasn't a joke. It was therapy. I really thought of it that way. And I didn't have any inclination of being an artist. In fact, I would, I felt embarrassed to even be an art major because it felt too grand for what mm -hmm. I was trying to do. But the thing that I thought was so valuable I had to do a lot of studios, which invariably took far more time than the English major, <laughs> just for what it's worth. And um, the act of making something, an act of painting particularly, like it is so messy in the sense that it looks so, at least my work looked terrible. Like it was so <laughs> uncomfortable to exist with like a half finished painting and then it would kind of come together into something presentable but the middle when you're like god yes. what is this it's so oh, awful it's the awkward adolescent phase yes it's why oil painting is so forgiving and watercolor you're like oh no I killed it yeah. <laughs> like I have to start over but at yeah. least I was I was grateful to be so uncomfortable and to feel like I and to know that I would like get to the other side I mean enough yeah. to get a good grade I so relate to what you're saying I feel like I learned so much um, about how to be in the world, being in the art studio. And I feel like what it is to just show up and make the work and then what it is to be like, yep, yeah, I'm going to paint over that. I have been privileged to work with a couple of successful entrepreneurs in my life, and I feel like they have that quality. Mm -hmm. And it's this combination of rigor and tenacity 
and very quiet but serious work ethic and then an ability to totally let it go. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you have to do that because you can't see something at the time. So the idea in entrepreneurship of pivoting is a kind of convenient way of phrasing that that makes it feel like you are in control. Um, But but to me, that studio practice and that uncomfortableness, as you describe it, um, is a gift. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And in the book, you talk about sort of the 80-20 principle and this forced focus that is sort of taught as healthy business. Like you, um, 80, 20% of your business line will create 80% of the profit. Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, 80% yeah. of the outcome comes from 20% of the work. So try to get, get that right so you're not doing too much, like kind of boiling the ocean. Exactly. But that you sort of offer a counter to that, which is that hyper-focus kills creativity, or at least that's how I read it. And it takes away a lot of that CDO time of that sort of like, am I feeling my way towards something good or... And and also it also limits your ability to sort of create the full couch and build the cushions that could then become the couch. Like we try, it's interesting with Goop in the early days when Gwyneth would go out and to raise money, investors invariably were like, you guys are doing too many things. You guys are doing too many things. Focus, focus. And she was like, there's really no way to focus. These things are all sort of part of the brand and the brand isn't one thing. And um, she would never back down about it. And then it's funny, like the last round, people were like, it's amazing. Like you have all these baby <laughs> businesses and bigger businesses. And thank God you didn't focus. And she's right. like, yeah. Yeah. Or that is the thing, but the thing has many parts and it's hard to see it while it's in formation. Mm-hmm. And because it, it looks nascent uh, overall more. Right. I think if you build up one silo and then expand, it's easier to recognize what it is. And I think they're, they're, the answer to both of those questions, the kind of 80-20 and the kind of focus question, and there's a time and a place to focus, and I do think about that. But the answer is sort of like, what are you creating of value? Like, and how do you um, let go of the crutch of thinking that you know the outcome when you start? Like, how do you develop a process orientation, which is so much of the kind of studio experience that we're both talking about and because you have no idea, none of us have a crystal ball. All we know is that we believe in something and we see what's possible and we're willing to commit to it in whatever amount of time, in whatever space we have. And, and that is um, its own reward. And that is also the, the work itself. So when you're in the weeds, how do you know, how do you know the work is good? Like, how do you know, <laughs> you know, you talk in the book, it's like an amazing paragraph where you talk, you say like every couple had to meet sometime, every person in their current role had a job interview for that job. The things that we value most were invented and probably you use Pixar a lot throughout the book, but like probably had variations that were not good. Um, how do you know you're on the right general path? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but you don't. Um, but that sounds like cold comfort, but it's actually exciting because it frees you up to do the work and to be in the work and to be connected to it and to be in your body, looking out your own eyes, oriented that way, not from 30,000 feet with a clipboard, figuring out, you know, good, bad, like, ooh, a small hop on the landing or whatever. Um, And I think that um, it puts you in the frame of mind of, of trying to create the best work. 
you know, not jumping over the bar, but figuring out how high you can jump. And I think, and I, I really think this, there is a dignity in failure if you have asked the question that you really mean to ask and that there is a deep and profound sadness in success if you were chasing after something that felt inauthentic. So the dignity piece is, you know, people who do lab research for a decade and they say, nope, no cures for cancer here, or the people where we've enshrined them in the pantheon, um, but something happened because they were present and effortful in a moment. And one of my favorite stories from the book is of uh, Roger Bannister, Mm -hmm. Sir Roger Bannister or Dr. Bannister, who in May of 1954 was the first person to run a mile in under four minutes in modern recorded history. And there's so many parts of that story that are beautiful. He didn't, he didn't know he could do it. He almost didn't run that day because the weather was truly terrible, even in England by British standards. And Bannister had failed at the Olympic Games in 1954 by his own standards. He came in fourth, didn't medal, and he said, I'll give myself two years. So he gave himself this grace period, which I think is also a helpful tool, the kind of studio time and the grace period where you say, I don't have to figure this out for a week or a month or a year. And he said, I'm training to be a neurologist In two years, I will be too busy with hospital work to run seriously. But up until that time, I'm going to give it everything I have. But he trained on his lunch breaks. He would run to the track from the hospital, run his workout, like down a sandwich and get back to work. And it was maybe two months before his two years was up that he that he successfully ran a mile in three minutes and 57, 59.7 seconds or something like ridiculously close and marginal. Um, and if you have five minutes this week and you need a break, look him up on YouTube and watch the video of him running. It makes me cry to watch it um, because he he's giving it everything he has before he knows he will succeed. So it's entirely possible that you know five one hundredths of a second would have passed and he wouldn't have gotten it. It still would have been such a beautiful gesture. And he did get it. And then he only held the record for 45 days before someone saw it was possible and bested his effort. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is this is the practice. This is, you know, what is it to move forward when there's not a template, when you are building the template and doing the work on your own terms? And think of how much is possible in the world if we all thought a little bit more like that, if we all believed that we had something to offer that was a little bit like that and took the vulnerability risk to tell other people about it and tried to work on stuff. I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot to work on in the world right now. I love that story. And I lo- also love the story about the balloon. Um, oh, Thomas Fogarty. Yeah. And <laughs> yes. his like childhood in the hospital. Yeah. Being sort of a mad scientist in the yeah. center and watching no. procedures. Um, he's just a kind of hilarious, amazing person. Um, he grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. His father um, was institutionalized and died when he was young. And as he liked to say, he had to be either busy or supervised. So his mother helped him get a job in a hospital. And the reason he went to work in a hospital was that they were exempted from child labor laws. And he was like 13, I think. And he um, basically is the person who figured out uh, non-invasive cardiovascular surgery that to remove a blood clot, you don't have to cut open the entire length of the artery. You can um, 
make a very small incision and thread in a deflated balloon, inflate the balloon through a catheter and pull the clot out. Um, this is a procedure that saved something like 20 million lives since it was invented. And he, he was able to tie the device together because he knew fly fishing knots and he only knew fly fishing knots because he used to jump out of the window at school to go fly fishing in the middle of the day, which is how he got put into a part-time job in the first place. Um, and that is maybe the second of a 165 patents that he owned in his lifetime. And he is always very funny. You know, he's like, that was so long ago. People think I'm Tom Fogarty's son. They think I'm dead. <laughs> so I, th I think if anything, that's an invitation to, to not even just to kind of wonder whether you'll be successful or, or fail, but to imagine that if you're successful, you'll have to reinvent later also. And it's amazing too, like in both of those examples, um, although obviously he stayed sort of within the medical device world, but that people can create across industries. They can be an incredible neurologist and an incredible runner and these multi-hyphenates that sort of exist throughout culture that we're often so ashamed to even mm -hmm. acknowledge. You talk a lot throughout the book about Leonardo da Vinci, sort of, again, like the master multi-hyphenate you know, mm -hmm. and using him as sort of a, an example of someone who hedged bets, had patrons, like took risk, like, and I love this idea, like, it's like, what would Leonardo do? Right. Like, what, <laughs> how does, how do you apply that? Like, how do you apply WWLD right. to, <laughs> to life? Yeah. And I think it's also possible that if he were alive today, he wouldn't be one person. He'd be a team of people. Mm -hmm. And you know, he knew so much of the available knowledge at his time. And now I think all of us are overwhelmed. I can barely keep up with my own Twitter feed. But what I do that I find really fun is I, I read across different areas and I see creative kind of inventing point B, what would Leonardo do projects all the time. I've been reading uh, Mike McFall, the former Russia ambassador's book, and he's talking about a strategy that was proposed to stop nuclear proliferation in Iran that involves like three different countries and the manufacture of um, low-grade plutonium, again, a little bit out of my depth uh, on the science. Um, but I, I think that you see creative thinking in every field. It often comes about when multiple people get together or when someone who's in one field takes a peek over the wall into another field. And I think, you know, climate change geopolitics, activism, women's health, uh, legal rights, immigration rights, uh, human rights, food safety, toxic load of chemicals, anything that you want to look at that you think is important can be riddled as a creative design problem. And the question is kind of what people do you want in the room or do you in, want to invite into the team? Um, and what ways do you particularly have an expertise or a point of view um, that that helps unlock some sort of contribution or way of moving forward. Let's take a quick break to talk about our partner. The Goop brand was built on the concept of making better choices, including which creams, oils, and fragrances we use to cleanse our faces and bodies. But what about all the sprays, wipes, and cleaning products we regularly use around the house? A lot of the conventional stuff is loaded with chemicals that are actually not necessary for these products to do their jobs. That's where Supernatural comes in. 
Their effective cleaning sprays are flipping the industry on its head, one conscious concentrate at a time. Not only is every product made using potent plant and mineral-based ingredients, they actually work without any toxic offenders. What this means is that cleaning day has become a much more refreshing, even pleasant experience. This stuff leaves the whole house smelling subtly of essential oils like fir, basil, and lavender. And as a mom, I don't really have to sweat the small stuff, like my kid eating a handful of cereal off the floor or getting their sticky fingers on the mirrors. You can try all four of their formulas with a Supernatural starter kit and get $10 off using code GOOP on Supernatural.com. Not all of us are natural-born chefs. In fact, I put myself in that category for a number of years. I thought about converting my kitchen pantry into toy storage for our two boys. I even gave them two of the main shelves. And while I could hold my own when it came to contributing a Thanksgiving side dish, I rarely cooked for cooking's sake. That was until my session with Jules Blaine Davis, who's known as the Kitchen Healer. It was with her help, really honestly, just a simple conversation, that I started seeing the kitchen as a place where I could be, rather than a place full of things I had to do. It was a subtle paradigm shift, but it was enough to get me cooking. And since then, I've been turning to Gobble as a springboard in the kitchen. I've been averaging about three dinners a week, which I think is pretty good since I have a full-time job, and I actually really like it. With Gobble, practically all the ingredients arrive ready to go and fresh, and unlike other meal delivery services, the chefs at Gobble really make the most delicious marinades and sauces. So all you have to do is follow the recipe card and you can have dinner ready and on the table in under 30 minutes. Gobble's family favorites, like the rigatoni bake, are always a hit with my kids. My husband and I now prefer Gobble's Thai basil chicken over our usual takeout options. And cooking feels more like a treat rather than just another chore. But cooking red or not, it's worth giving Gobble a try. Log on to gobble.com backslash goop to get $50 off. That's gobble.com backslash goop for $50 off your first box. Okay, let's get back to our chat. I know you talk, you mentioned in the book, Sulk and how he took sort of sole credit for something that actually involved multiple people. You talked a lot about within the run, the four-minute mile, how he was paced by his friends who were also incredible runners, and they kept him sort of contained for his final, yeah. I guess, quarter mile. Like, how how important, and you talked about the relationship of artists with each other in terms of bolstering each other up and, and providing support. Like, do you think the creative process is inherently collaborative, or is it a solo endeavor? Like, what what is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's inherently collaborative. Do you happen to watch soccer or did you happen to watch the world cup i've wa- i watched some of it so, I'm, I'm out of my depth in league and <laughs> soccer i i weirdly became obsessed with the world cup this time but anybody who's watched it and you watch countries um play the teams play that hard and then it comes down to penalties and you watch this one person walk up to take a shot and then you see somebody lose a shot or you see the goalie block it like that to me is the most profound en- encapsulation of zero sum thinking where there has to be a winner and a loser. And I think what's exciting about creativity is that it's inherently generative and that it's not zero sum. And I think often it gets put in a zero sum container where this person's a star and this person's a genius and this person gets credit. 
to, I'll share a story from my past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I published a piece recently to weigh in on this debate about um, how artists are compensated equitably. And um, I have a collaborator who's really important to me in my work, and he's amazing. And I wrote the piece because he suggested that we respond based on our research. And I added his name because the larger collaboration involves him. So as a woman who works in a technological field in academia, um, authorship is important. It's important to tenure. It's important because it's accurate. And it's important because often the assumptions people make run in the other direction, where they assume that because my collaborator is a senior male professor of finance, that maybe he did more of the work, or maybe I don't understand the math or the technology. It's, some of it's blockchain related. And when the piece came out, they reversed the author order, so they put him first. And I was like, listen, I wanted to add him to this because he's a thought partner and because I can and because that's how I want to show up in the world. I, I want to err on the side of always citing my collaborators, but that is not permission to put me second because people already do that. They already kind of put the names alphabetically in this sort of, I don't know if it's just they're better at alphabetical order than I am. I'm terrible at alphabetical order or if there's an unconscious bias or a desire for order. But one of the pieces we were writing against um, was written by two male full professors of law and they were out of alphabetical order correctly. And so I've really been meditating on this. Like, why do I care? You know, life is short. doesn't matter if his name's first. And then I'm like, you know, I, I did write the piece, but the solution shouldn't be for me to kick him off the piece either. And the idea that there's some sort of glitchy algorithm in the software, which is why it didn't work, isn't really satisfactory anyway. So I think, you know, the answer is just to always try to acknowledge people and to always accept that there's imperfection in it. I do a lot of research in archives, and I catch myself doing this all the time. I was reading about an art show that happened in, I think, the 1960s or 70s, and there are two curators, and one of them is Vincent Scully, the very famous art history professor at Yale. I was like, oh, Vincent Scully. And then I realized he had a female co-curator who I'd never heard of, but the fact that I've never heard of her might just be because she wasn't championed in the same way, or I, I don't know, but she's a co-author, and so I need to learn her name and put it in what I'm doing. So I think I think we do this all the time, and I think it's because there's so many names to keep straight and so many people, and it's um, comforting to have singular narratives rather than looking at it forensically and saying, do we correctly credit people? It's like we can look at it going forward and say, how can I be kind of present to non-zero-sum acknowledgement of everyone who's part of everything. So I think all of us are wired to want to be appreciated, and there's a kind of magic to it, the way the hospitality has a magic to it, mm-hmm. um, where it elevates the room without taking away from anyone. I agree, and I think you're right to call it out, because I think it requires, like, people need to, they should pay attention, and they should check the order of published names, or if it's, if it's, if there is a deliberate order, then enforce the deliberate order unilaterally or, you know, like it yeah, can't. But it's so tricky because then the the defensive energy required for me to do that, it probably took two and a half days of my life to do the fact check, which was 
really intense. They didn't find anything wrong, but felt, I don't know, everything feels gendered at the moment. Um, it felt gendered. That might be wrong on my part. But um, And then the author order, like it, it took a long time to figure out, and um, it's still not totally fixed. Um, but the it it's hard to... Um, and for all of us um, to have those things happen to you and to experience that and to have to get into a defensive position of using energy to try to defend against that and to question whether it's appropriate, whether you're wanting too much or, you know, whether you should just kind of suck it up and deal. I mean, I think these are kind yeah. of the subtleties of the, like, to me, they're um, the part of discrimination or kind of gender and racial and all forms of socioeconomic, all forms of inclusion, they're the parts of it that are on the offensive half of the soccer field where it's not, does everyone have a chair at the table? But it's like, what's the opportunity cost here? What's the amazing work or the four minute mile that someone could run if we gave them a chance um, or they weren't running into a headwind of having to, you know, find a chair to pull up to the table or whatever it is. And, and, and I say that having many forms of privilege that I'd like to think I have some self-awareness of, but yeah. like, to me, these are the questions of kind of what's possible that we don't see. Who are the people like the Harper Lees of the world who had great novels in them, who didn't have a chance to write them? And wouldn't we all be better off if we could, you know, make it more like Montreal and have no. time to champion that? A hundred percent. And but I and I just don't want to let you off the hook and why the order and the credit is important because it's annoying. Yes, and I totally understand. I understand that urge very yeah. much to be like, I don't need credit or yeah. I'm going to shut myself. No, no, like no. this is embarrassing. Like it is embarrassing to have to do that. But then it, it forces a sor- certain amount of consciousness and awareness and a little bit of embarrassment on the part of the people who mm-hmm. are ordering. Yeah the work and then maybe they won't do that again or maybe it brings awareness yeah. to what they're doing and it it you pay you're paying it forward for yeah. someone down the line you know i i actually appreciate we've just met but i appreciate the <laughs> intervention on this because um there are a lot of other parts to it and i i feel like we're we're talking in a recorded venue but you know um i would file this under a, f- a few different headings and one is um sometimes like this, if something I perceive as important along gender lines and they're like, no, this is not gender. This is a computer algorithm, but it's also being, you're dealing with, um, women and men. And sometimes like it's women who are enacting what is not helpful from a gender standpoint, which is the end result of not crediting women for their work and their ideas. My male co-author is excellent and was like, yes, absolutely. Like you need to fix this. But also there these larger systems of imperfection. Like I wrote that piece because I thought the ideas were important. I think we were paid a hundred dollars to do it. And you know, that that's fine. I see a lot of imperfect economics and I as an ethical practice, given my actual work, I have to interact with them. But I think when you're in a situation where there's so much that's already a gray area, sometimes it's hard to pick out the thing that's unscripted and be like, hey, actually, this is the part that matters. Like, I can deal with this amount of imperfection in the system for intellectual labor and the compensation of intellectual or creative labor, but this is the thing that matters. And I think for someone like me who has a highly non-traditional career path, like I took a entry-level academic position 
because I have a tenure track job without a PhD. And I was like, I always want to be a person who can just take the job because it's the job where I get to do the research I want to do. But you take the job and then you, by some people, get treated as the position in all different dimensions where they're like, you're going to be hyper intellectual and talk down to people or you're just starting out so you don't have experience in this area. And I think for all of us, I, I have to imagine this happens to a lot of other people where you know, you get put into roles and you get put into boxes by other people. And often, more often than not, um, the people who have cultivated the capacity to see and value originality are often people who have either um, excelled themselves or given themselves space. And I think, you know, all of us are trying to support each other and and find that. So thank you for the intervention and for the, <laughs> the sort of the authorship reminder. Um, it does matter. Um, credit does matter the same way voice matters. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's really uh, part of the message of the book is this idea that everyone has a voice that matters, that it's not this rarefied, be an audience member for the masterpiece artwork. Mm -hmm. um, but you are a human being and creativity is part of what you have to offer in the world. And it's not creativity with a capital C. Um, it's the ability to think in an untemplated, complex, original way. Perfect ending. Thanks for joining us today. I really enjoyed hearing Amy talk about why most of the major creativity stories are myths. For more, check out Amy's book, Art Thinking, How to Carve Out Creative Space in a World of Schedules, Budgets, and Bosses. And before I head out, I'm taking a question from one of you. Catherine would like to know if I've ever been a vegetarian or a vegan and why. I think I've been everything, Catherine, at one point or another. Being a vegan was particularly hard for me because I love cheese. And so that was pretty short-lived, but I wanted to... I did it for 30 days once because I wanted to see what it was like. And I felt amazing, to be honest. And I've been vegetarian on and off for years, so sometimes I am. I, but I'm usually a pescatarian, but sometimes, you know, you'll find yourself at Franklin Barbecue or something, and you'll have to have some brisket. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.